Hey, what's up everyone? This is Explode View. My name is Craig Mackwitz. Today we are chatting with industrial designer Peter Bressler. You may know him as the founder of Bressler Group in Philly, or from his role as expert witness in the recent Apple vs. Samsung case. Today's ExplodeView topic dives into what every designer should know about design patents and IP, and how the Supreme Court has helped shape industrial design. As a bonus, Peter also goes over his checklist of five must-haves before starting a design business. He actually adds a couple more at the end. In 2010, IDSA recognized Peter as one of the top 50 industrial designers of the past 50 years. I hope you enjoy. Let's get going. Peter Bressler, it's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. It's an honor to be on. I have to say, it must have been an incredible honor to receive that award. That is quite a recognition. Uh, frankly, it, it was just a wonderful feeling. Um, yeah, it, it really was a lovely experience and uh, made me feel wonderful. That must be amazing. Considering you've also put a lot of time into the IDSA over the years, you've uh, were a chapter chair for a while. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I was a chapter chair and I was a, a regional vice president and a member of the board of directors for a number of years, uh, secretary, treasurer, vice president, president, chairman of the board, you know, went through the whole structure. Um, and it was a great time. I must admit, you know, the old adage about you get out of IDSA, what you put into it is, is really accurate. And um, I had a great time putting time in and I got a lot back. Yeah, that's great. I can I can definitely uh, vouch for that incredible experience I've had with the IDSA as well. I want to go back to your early years. So what was Peter Presser like as a kid? Were you always uh, seeking creative endeavors? Was that something that was always of interest to you? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, when I was really young, I used to do an awful lot of model making. Uh, as in airplane models and ship models and that kind of stuff. That was back when we used balsa wood instead of plastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I actually had to learn how to stretch silk span. But, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time making models. And then when I was a little older, like 10 or 11, 12-ish, I started just making my own stuff out of balsa wood. Um, basically I designed and made a little hydrofoil and I did a, what, what my vision of a little spacecraft was, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's fun. And did you have those hanging up in the room? Was that, were they all over? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, my father had some down in his office and I had some up on my shelves and, you know, drawing houses and all kinds of stuff. So I kept myself busy. <laughs> You, you said your dad uh, had some of these as well hanging up. Did do you have somebody who was inspiring you uh, in the design field or in that in that passion for creativity? I think probably the the largest influence was probably my mother, who was a painter and who was a member of a uh, architecture design artist consortium in Philadelphia. Oh wow. Um, and so I got exposed to a lot of that kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, it was one of her connections that got me to go to RISD. Hmm. Is that where you learned about industrial design as well? Well, actually, what happened was we wanted we were trying to figure out where I should go to school. Um, I was trying to figure out where to apply to. And um, so we packed up all my junk and my mother marched me into, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but Louis Kahn was a well-known architect at the time who was chair, chair of the department at, at architecture at Penn. And so we went in and we plunked all the stuff on his desk and said, okay, do I want to be an aeronautical engineer or do I want to be an architect? And he said, you don't want to be either one. You want to be an industrial designer and you want to go to Rhode Island School of Design. Wow. And so fortunately, I got in and I was able to do that. So did you visit the school or do any research prior to going or you knew that was where you had to be? No, I, I didn't know that's where I had to be. And as a matter of fact, I almost didn't go. 
because uh, when I went up for my admissions interview, which they used to do in those days, um, Providence is a rather snowy place. Yep. <laughs> and so I was all dressed up in my three-piece suit from prep school with my little hat on and raincoat and all that stuff. And I got out of the cab at the top of what is now Angel Street um, and slipped to the bottom and almost went into Benefit Street. Except I grabbed a railing and spun around the corner. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I when I went into one of the buildings and asked where the admissions office was, I ended up speaking with a, a young lady in torn off jeans, high boots, and a sweater who just said, Oh, and pointed down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> right. That was my introduction. Yeah. And uh I was not thrilled about it and almost didn't go, but then my parents talked me into giving it another chance. Wow. Yeah, that's quite, yeah, it's quite the introduction. So what was, what was that experience like at, at RISD? Oh, that was wonderful. Um, I don't think I've ever worked so hard or played so hard in my life. Delightful, intriguing, inspiring. Um, I was fortunate enough to go during a time when the department was actually chaired by a mechanical engineer hmm. and the other two primary, well, the other three primary faculty members were Eugene Joseph, who was an illustrator craftsman and Mark Harrison, who was a major design researcher of the time. And Ken Honeybell was the shop guy and between the four of them, I'd got this huge diversity of perspectives that was really exciting to deal with. You were in good hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So along with your BFA in industrial design that you're working towards, you also received a certification for research and design for disabilities. Where did, where did that come into the picture and what was kind of the influence there? So I went to work in Philadelphia for as a consultant for an organization called uh, the Franklin Institute Research Labs, or Research Institute, I'm not sure which. Uh, and they did a lot of government contract stuff. Okay. And they wanted a program within their group uh, for design for disabilities. And uh, so then I, I received a certain number of certifications while I was working at Franklin Institute. While you were doing the certification, is that when you design uh, the stand-up wheelchair? No, actually, the, the stand-up wheelchair was my senior project at RISD. And I got very lucky and won some awards for it. And so there was a little bit of funding around to take it to a second prototype stage. Really, it was designing for manufacturing. And... Um, so actually, I had finished that and had licensed it uh, before I started at Franklin Institute. Oh, wow. So you, you were able to find a license or somebody to license out that design? Oh, yeah, man, that's that's a pain in the tail. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, running, I, running around <laughs> trying to, if you'll excuse the expression, pedal your ass all over town, <laughs> uh, <laughs> trying to find somebody to manufacture something you've come up with that nobody really wants to manufacture because it's different than everybody else's is, is a challenge. Oh, I bet. And it takes some guts to, to do that and to stick with it. Either guts or stupidity. I'm not sure which. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I came across a, a quote you said is uh, my relatives encouraged me to complete the design of my senior thesis, stand up wheelchair and find a licensed manufacturer. Was your family entrepreneurial and did they start businesses or building businesses was in the family or was this no, kind of, they were the worst business people in the world. <laughs> my mother was a painter and my father was a doctor. So neither of them had any sense of, of business at all. And I didn't get any at RISD. So I didn't have much either. And they did provide some support, though it obviously wasn't enough to keep me from having to make a $20,000 loan to finish the project. So, so you were able to find somebody to license. And then where did it, what became of it? What, was, what happened next? <laughs> well, that, that's a whole other story in itself. 
uh, licensed the wheelchair to a manufacturer of swimming pools, believe it oh, or not. Wow. Interesting. Who wanted to get into that field and saw the awards I'd gotten and thought it was a wonderful idea and he wanted to manufacture it. And so he licensed it from me over the next year or two. He actually redeveloped it into making it out of sheet metal instead of, I had designed it to be die cast in aluminum. Hmm. Uh, and he redesigned it to be fabricated in sheet metal as in steel. Wow. Which of course blew all the weight criteria. Yeah. Um, and they didn't do a very good job of it. And one of the things that I was encouraging them to do was submit it to the VA because if you don't have the VA behind you, you're really not doing much in rehab. And um, <laughs> they submitted it to the VA and it had 30 manufacturing defects. Oh, wow. As in not design <laughs> defects, manufacturing defects, as in the rubber would come off the wheels. Wow. <laughs> that's not that's not good. <laughs> so they took it back. Supposedly, they were fixing it. And uh, when they resubmitted it a year later, it had 28 of the same 30 defects. Oh, wow. Okay. So not much changed. And I just couldn't be part of uh, selling chairs that didn't work. So I took the rights back. Wow. it's quite a story. That must have been a, a good learning experience, though, at the very least. Oh, phenomenal learning experience. Definitely heartbreaking. I learned how much I didn't like to sell. <laughs> but ended up having to do it anyway. Right. <laughs> I learned something about contracts and how they work. And I learned something about patents and how they work. So I, I learned a lot from that experience. I really did. Yeah. It's those uh, life-changing experiences in design that in the moment they're painful, but then when you look back, you realize how much you learned from that. Oh, for sure. For sure. I also read um, this quote from you. It said, I started my business in 1972 with huge debt, no contacts, no clients, a chamber of commerce directory, and the telephone. I would not recommend this as a good plan to start a consulting business. And it was funny. This is perfect timing because I started something back in uh, January. So going through and kind of learning from what you have done, I think was uh, really beneficial <laughs> um, and, and to hear those things right. and kind of reflect right. on them. So I, I take it the first few years were a bit of a struggle. Uh, they were, were off. <laughs> <laughs> um, fortunately, I had a couple of more projects to do for the manufacturer of the wheelchair. But yeah, it was basically sit down and call people on the phone and say, hi, I'm an industrial designer. And they would say, what's that? And I would go through my whole spiel about what an industrial designer does and how much benefit it can provide for a manufacturer. Um, and this one guy who had been very receptive for like 20 minutes on the phone finally paused and said, you mean somebody really pays you to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and I was so tired trying to sell them at the time. Um, I, I couldn't come up with an answer. <laughs> I yeah. was say would be out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That would, that would throw me off as well. <laughs> so my first, my first year's gross was 7,500 bucks. That's good. It's something. Um, year's gross was 14,000. That, that's almost a hundred percent growth. That's great. Yeah. That's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> you can't beat that. Fortunately, it kept growing from there with a few minor downturns. But yeah, it, that's that's how it happened. And I certainly would never do it that way again. So on that note, um, which I, this is something you did that I really appreciate is uh, in a 2004 book by Bruce Hanna, Becoming a Product Designer. You wrote a list of five items for anybody who's starting a design business. And I thought maybe we could go down the list of these five items and you could, you know, put a little color on them and, and uh, go into oh, detail. Wow. If, uh, <laughs> when was that book published? <laughs> uh, this was 2004. So, yeah, it's been a couple of years. Yeah. I thought maybe you'd have some more insights. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Tell me what I said. <laughs> okay. So, so number one is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, don't start as I did from scratch with no money or contacts. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty straightforward. And that's, 
the biggest thing that I learned was that it was a stupid way to go. I actually at one point considered quitting and taking a job for somebody and then restarting later. But uh, the, the reason I actually started the firm was not because I really wanted to start a firm. It was because the only two jobs I'd ever been offered was one designing hubcaps for Ford at 26 grand a year, which would have been pretty good. But I couldn't see myself designing hubcaps all day. And hmm. the other one was for a local design consultant uh, who offered me 10 grand a year that I really couldn't live on and pay my and pay off my loan for the wheelchair. So I basically had to figure out how much money I had to make working half time or billing mm. half time um, in, in order to to cover the nut. And, you know, seventeen fifty an hour was what it took. So that's what I started charging. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, reading don't start from scratch with no money in, or context, I think is an excellent one because, you know, you get there's a certain romanticism of owning your own business but you know and looking at the pragmatic side of you know what are these things and items that i need to check off prior to making a jump i mean i I blame that whole thing on my grandfather because he told me if you if if you if you're almost the best people will beat a path to your door so i'd try like hell to be the best and Mm. nobody came to my door (laughs) (laughs) he clearly was was speaking from another generation right Number two is try to remember that most of what is needed to be successful in business could not be taught by your design school. Oh, for sure. Well, it either cannot be taught or it's not being taught. Uh, I certainly didn't get it in, at RISD. Um, I know some of my peers went ahead and got masters in business, MBAs, um, which probably was smart. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the school is not set up to teach you the kind of business things you need. Particularly RISD is not set up to teach you that kind of stuff. Uh, they're too busy cramming as much design knowledge into your head for the four and a half, five years as possible. Yeah. And uh, it's almost right when you get out of school, you you come out with so much drive and so much passion for design, which is incredibly exciting. And you're looking to get those first experiences. And I think that's when you start to realize the whole business aspect and working with all these other people. And even in internships, you start to kind of get that sense. Uh, and, and it is interesting because that whole business aspect, you don't learn until after school. Well, I mean, that's that's why I think it's important for people to work for somebody else for five years. Learn for their. If you want to be in a consultancy, work for a consultant for five years and learn their mistakes. Hmm. Sit there and see what they do wrong, see what they do right, and assimilate that into your business plan. Yeah, that, that's great advice. That makes a lot of sense. Number three is have enough money not only to begin, but sustain yourself. And how long would you say is sustain is is proper amount of time to sustain oneself? Uh, ultimately, I think I figured out that to feel reasonably secure, you needed to have a year's worth of what you would need to live on in reserve. Now, that may be different now than it was then. Um, or it would have been very different had I worked for somebody else for a while. Mm. Another little anecdote was was there was a point after about four years where I went through a real dry spell. And I mean, like six months with no proposals to write. And I was scared to death. And I was thinking maybe I should give it up. And so I happened to be friendly at that point with a designer in New York named Morrison Cousins. And who, who, of his nature, was a little bit arrogant. And so I called him up and said, how do you know when you're done? How do you know when you got to give up? And his response was, well, Peter, you know, some of us can cut it and some of us can't. Hmm. Which, of course, pissed me off no end. <laughs> and there was no way I was going to give it up having him say that. So... So I put yeah. my head down and kept grinding. It's uh, great advice because it is. Uh, it could be a driver when you hear that. Oh, you for know? sure. 
It's lighting a fire under your tail. So I'm grateful to him for that. Number four, remember that most firms fail within the first five years. Why do you think that is? What's the five-year mark mean? Let's see if I can remember why I said that. I mean, I think it's true. I think I remember reading it and hearing it somewhere. You know, if you can get past five years and still be alive and kicking and still have work, it seems to continue on from there. Hmm. I don't know why that is. Probably don't have enough business background to know. It does seem to be the case. Kind of the gut feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But from what I've heard, it's actually pretty accurate from what I've heard from other people. Number five is know yourself well enough to understand whether you have the right personality for self-promotion, marketing, and selling. And I thought this was a, this was a good one to kind of self-reflect on. And I was curious, what would you consider to be the right personality? I, I think there are a bunch of traits that I don't have, <laughs> <laughs> which is why I said that. I think one needs to be naturally gregarious. I think one needs to be somewhat aggressive and driven. I certainly need, you need to be tenacious, uh, which is, I think, the only thing I had going for me. And I think you need, need to be able to be honest with yourself about how you're doing, which is very hard to do. Because the point of promoting yourself is you have to believe how good you are. And part of the problem I had with that was every time a project went out of the office, I knew everything that was wrong with it. Hmm. Not that they were bad solutions. They were good. They just weren't as good as I thought they could have been if they'd been in the office longer. I, th I think you have to have a really good sense of confidence in your own ability to do what you say you can do. And my, my whole attitude about life has to do with what I call sincere irreverence, hmm. which um, basically is you're sincerely trying to understand why everything is the way it is and not accepting anything the way it is. And, and, I, and that makes it very difficult to have the level of confidence that you need to, to exude in order to be successful in, in business, I believe. It's uh, it's really interesting because you never think about, you know, it's hard to be uh, proud when you know all these flaws, but to kind of look past that and see the accomplishment is uh, is really that's the hard part. It's really yeah. hard, yeah. It's um, but it's something we need to work uh, on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, industrial designers, except for the ones that are really successful, are probably some of the most insecure people in the in the profession. Um. Yeah, that's that's the way you have to look at it. Really, hmm. is is you're not trained to be a self promoter when you're in school. Um, it's something that has to. Frankly, I think it has to come somewhat naturally, or you need to take or have some experience with people that are that way that can teach you how to do it. Right. I mean, when when you're trying to sell a business when you're young, you know, most of the time what you hear is no. And it's really hard to hear no all the time and feel good. Yeah, and stay confident. And I think people, people that can let that roll off uh, have a great advantage. Hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. They may not be honest with themselves, but <laughs> they're at, a, at an advantage from a business standpoint. Right. Yeah, that's great advice. And it's, uh, it's good to reflect on that every so often and see where, you know, just take a pulse of where you're at, you know? Yeah. Is there, is there anything else you'd add to that list now after oh further experience since 2004? Um, I think the only thing else I would add to that list is work with an understanding that if you want it badly enough, you can make it happen. Whether you think it's really good or not doesn't matter. It's the fact that you can make it happen if you work hard enough at it. Hmm. Um, and... I would like to think that I was fair to most of the people that worked for me, uh, which I think is, is part of what you need to do. But, you know, if you think about it, you got a big firm and there's a downturn in work and you got to lay people off. Um, that's the hardest thing you have to do in, in, in a design business. Hmm. As far as I'm concerned, 
Um, selling is, is number two and laying people off is number one in terms of the difficulty. Yeah. And there's no uh, getting prepared for that. Yeah. That's hard. It's just hard. What was the most joyous thing? I guess we'll end on a positive note with the owning your business. <laughs> one, of, one of the great things about being in the design consulting business is that there's once you're off the ground, there's always another project. And you have that many times an opportunity to have a client say, yeah, this is exactly what I wanted. This fantastic. Mm. Or yeah, it's selling better than we thought it was going to. And winning a design award or something like that. When you get that kind of feedback, I mean, that's, or, or when you get someone who goes away to work for another firm and comes back to work for your firm because they like it better. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's gotta be a good feeling. Those are all good feelings. Yeah. And, um, when you're feeling down, you just have to remember them. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you going through those five, five. Well, now sure. there's about seven in there now. I think those are really great. <laughs> lessons for us to, yeah. Lessons for us to learn. So now I want to get into the topic for Explodive View, which is all about design patents and IP and really uh, digging into that concept a bit more. So when I first talked to you about it, um, I had mentioned trademarking, uh, you know, design patents, utility patents. And you said, well, focus on design patents and IP. And I realized that I probably need a, a good schooling myself and a, a refresher on what those are. So if you wouldn't mind just starting off, uh, giving us a little 101 of design patents, utility patents, just IP in general, um, just to give us uh, a good sense of what are the baselines there? What, what should we know? All right, I'll, I'll, I'll try to. Basically, intellectual property protection is something that the government has established, I think, back in the 1700s to basically make an exchange between an inventor slash designer and the public. And the idea behind intellectual property protection is that if we grant you the ability to prevent other people from making what you've designed for a specific number of years and give you a monopoly, and that's the word that's used. If it give you a monopoly on that particular hmm. product or that particular design for a number of years, which in design patents, I believe, is 14 years, um, then in return, after the 14 years, you will make that design public property. Hmm. So if someone patents, someone's patent has expired, you can go ahead and make whatever they designed. And that, that's where generic drugs come from. Uh, basically, when the patent on the initial formulation expires, then other people can manufacture that formulation at will. So it's, it's, it's an interesting exchange that the government has developed where you're given hmm. this this monopoly for 14 20 however many years it is depending on the on the process um and it's interesting because you're not given the right to call the police and make somebody stop doing something um you are given the right to sue them to stop doing something interesting so just because you have a, a patent doesn't mean someone's not going to do something. Giving you a patent is giving you the right to spend money to prevent somebody from doing something. That's a good delineation. I did, didn't realize that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't happen automatically. Hmm. Uh, matter of fact, the wheelchair patent um, at one point was being infringed upon to the degree that the patent attorney I was talking to felt that I could probably prosecute them, but I couldn't afford to do it. Hmm. So it didn't happen. And they ended up making a wheelchair that was slightly different, but did the same thing. 
So now then, if, if you're talking about intellectual property, there are several different kinds of intellectual property. The one most people are most familiar with is utility patents. And a utility patent protects the way you have designed something should be made. It doesn't protect necessarily what it does. It protects how it does it. There are also trademarks, which is a way of registering something you've designed. Usually tends to be more like a logo or tends to be more two-dimensional, but not necessarily so. And it is purely appearance-based, but it's a totally different framework in terms of what's protected and how long it's protected. Hmm. Okay. The design patent gives you protection for the ornamental ornamental nature is, are the terms they use. And what that means is, and, and this is where it starts getting interesting, over the years, court cases change patent law. And this is what a lot of people don't realize. If you infringe on my patent and I sue you and we go to court and you claim that my patent is functional and therefore should not be given a design patent because design patents are only for ornament. Mm -hmm. And by ornament, they mean what it looks like. They use the word ornament to differentiate it from function. So let's say I sue someone for infringing my design patent mm. or, or we go to court. The court says, nah, he didn't infringe your design patent. But I think he still I still think he did. So I can appeal that. Mm -hmm. And that appeal process goes on to the point where it gets to um, an appeals court. And the judgments that appeals courts make influence people's understanding and perception of the law as it was written. Wow. I had no idea. So the the famous case in design patents is the Gorham case where Gorham came up with a flatware design, a handle of a fork. And somebody else started making something that was not exactly the same, but similar, substantially similar. And those are important words to the Gorham design and they were sued. And so the result of that actually, I believe went to the Supreme court. Uh, and the reading that came down from that is that if in the eyes of an ordinary observer, meaning whoever might buy one, a product is brought to market that in that ordinary observer's view is substantially the same as the design patent, such that the ordinary observer might be deceived into buying one instead of the other, then the second person mm -hmm. infringes the first. Okay, so that's how they define in, intruding on somebody else's rights. And that doesn't include any of the packaging or anything that goes around it. It's solely just a product. No, no, no. It's just, well, I mean, you can patent whatever, well, you can try to patent whatever you want. But if you're patenting, if you're patenting a pen, you can have a utility patent on how you assemble the pen, how you make the pen work. You can have a design patent on what that same pen looks like. Hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if that pen that someone else makes looks substantially like your pen and you can convince a court of law that yes, these people are making a pen that looks just like mine. You used to be entitled to the entire profits. Wow. That the infringer ever made on making and selling the thing that looked like yours. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can imagine. But it, it, it also, if you go through all the steps that happened, and each of the steps, you know, is a different court decision that influences slightly how lawyers interpret the law. Um, 
I mean, right now there's a big contest going on as a result of the Apple Samsung thing, where the question is, what is the article of manufacture? Hmm. Because if you're infringing on the design of the article of manufacture, that's what you're concerned about. Um, and it's the overall appearance of the article of manufacture. So the question with cell phones is what is the article of manufacture? Is it the, you know, let's I'll be very specific. Apple has a patent on the flat front, totally black face of the iPhone. Wow. I didn't know they could do that. Yeah, well, they did. And that's because the appearance was different than everybody else's that came before them. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So all the prior art did not have a totally flat, shiny black front face. So they have a patent on that shiny black front face. And in fact, Samsung was convicted of infringing that. At least the jur the juries agreed that they were infringing it. The issue then became, well, what of the cell phone is the article of manufacture that you're paying these profits on? Are you paying the profit just on that screen? Interesting. On that front face? Are you paying for the profits on the whole cell phone? And it really depends on how you how you define the article of manufacture. Wow. So potentially you could have uh, them having to return any funds as a result of just the screen potentially or the entire phone. So that was what they were kind of just trying to decide. Exactly. And that's what the fight is over. And it's a fight that's still going on. Are all design patents created equal? So in other words, are there good and bad design patents in the way that they're formed? Uh, yes, I think so. One of the issues with a design patent is determining what they call the scope of the design patent. And what that means is how exactly does someone have to infringe or inexactly does someone have to infringe, i.e., uh, go back to the Apple thing, if they patented that front screen. That front screen looks a certain way. It has a certain proportion of the rectangle, has certain appearance to the radii on the edges. And I'm not giving you any dimensions because there are no dimensions in design patterns. So the question is, how far away could you design something? Could you make the front a trapezoid and get away from their patent? Mm. Or... Could it be a triangle and get away from their patent? Or could it be round and get away from their patent? Could it be a different texture and get away from their patent? So none of that is really clear until you chase it down. Mm. So a good patent, and part of the issue is the design patents are really only claiming that which is depicted in the illustrations. There, there are no... Other than some introductions at the beginning, there are no illustration by illustration descriptions and like that, there are in utility patents. And that's so interesting because I've noticed that, you know, from a utility patent compared to a design patent, I mean, the utility patent, you send some imagery and some copy away and it comes back with, you know, multiple pages of, of content. And yes. design patents, not quite. Why is it? Why is there such a difference um, and there's such a heavy reliance on the image in a design patent? Because that's what the design patent is covering. The design patent is covering what something looks like. And that's all it covers. Mm. There used to be a whole, there was a whole period when people were using verbal descriptions to describe the design. And therefore, they could emphasize one part of it or not another part of it. And they could tilt what the decision was going to be based on their descriptions. Finally, some judges came down and said, look, it doesn't you shouldn't describe it with words because words can't fully communicate what a picture is. So it's the claims in the patent are what the illustrations are. 
period. And even the size, and you had mentioned that dimensions not being size included. Size doesn't matter. Material doesn't matter. Color doesn't matter. None of those things are specified in a design patent. Wow. Or you could specify them, but they, but again, they would limit your scope. Hmm. You specified that that cell phone had to be red or was red, then anybody else could come up with the same cell phone that was a different color and avoid your patent. I see. So it does benefit you to leave out some of those details in order to make sure that you're covered. That's where I was trying to get to. That makes a lot of sense. The, the best patents are the ones that get away with leaving as broad a description in the illustration as possible. Lousy patents are ones that, in, in my mind personally, a lousy patent is one that's filed with a photograph. <laughs> so this is why this describes why the photograph is not interpretation. Right. And so this describes the the style that has been used for so long for for patents, right? Is that yeah. it doesn't give you that detail of a photograph. Exactly. So the details can be very different and still look substantially the same. That's very interesting. It is, it is an interesting conundrum. And utility patents are all words. And you can win or lose a utility patent argument on what word's being used. Hmm. Um, (laughs) I was involved in in a case years ago where there was a safety needle. And the patent for the safety needle said that the safety device, when pushed, went toward the end of the needle where it protected it. And the defendant was claiming that because theirs didn't go to the end, which the the patented one did, uh, that they weren't infringing. Wow. (laughs) Well, in fact... Small detail. Yeah, the patented company won because their word was toward the end, not to the end. Wow. Yeah. So that's what words get important in utility patents. Yeah, that I can imagine at that point, if you, it's that one word that throws off an entire lawsuit. I mean, that's really, yeah. uh, that's really incredible. It did. Interesting experience. So I want to talk to you about um, becoming an expert witness. So uh, first, just could you describe what an expert witness is? Okay. An expert witness needs to be someone who has some level of training, an, an expert witness in, in design patents, at least this is the way it's formulated in the reports you write, uh, has a degree in at least industrial design and potentially maybe engineering, um, who has three to 10 years, depending on who you talk to, uh, experience in designing products that are somewhat similar to the one that they're testifying about. Okay. So if, if I had never designed consumer electronics, I probably would not have qualified for as a, as an expert witness for the cell phones. Okay. Gotcha. So, so basically they're looking for somebody who has experience in that particular industry. Generally. Um, yeah. And you- and you've designed products that um, are similar where you've done maybe multiple in the, in the same category. So you see the differences is, is and it's a very clear. Category or similar technologies or similar marketplaces. And interestingly enough, and this is something that an expert has to watch out for. I, I had a case recently, last couple of years, uh, that was a personal flotation device. Uh, was made by Coleman, the camper company. And it was, a you know, one of these things you put on a kid and it's got a couple of rings that go around your arms and a thing that goes around your chest and it keeps your kid from drowning. Well, the design patent had a very, spe- they, they had a design patent and they had a utility patent. The design patent is what they were claiming was being infringed. By this other company. Okay. Part of the process is you learn about all the stuff and what's going on and you form opinions. And then the other side is allowed to depose you 
meaning they ask you a lot of questions about your opinions and what your qualifications are for having those opinions about that particular patent. Wow. So it's like the ultimate portfolio review at that point. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's more like a thesis challenge. Um, I mean, the, these guys are being paid an awful lot of money to make you look like an ass. And they work very hard at it. Um, but basically what happened in this particular, and it's called a deposition. What happened in this particular deposition is I was arguing that this is the appearance of this personal flotation device. That's what we're talking about. The opposition or the defendant was making the argument that most of the thing was functional, which is not allowed to be and be a design patent. And therefore, they didn't infringe because there shouldn't have been a design patent. Hmm. But I was arguing with that. And, and so what they went to was they asked me if I knew what all the Coast Guard requirements were. Wow. For a personal flotation device. <laughs> that's, that's, did you, so did you have that uh, knowledge? That, uh, no, 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 I did not have the knowledge <laughs> because I was talking about the appearance. Right. I wasn't talking about how it works. And so they asked me a straight out question. Do you have expertise in the Coast Guard regulations for personal flotation devices? Now, in retrospect, I probably should have just so I could answer the question well. But it was a yes or no answer. And basically, I admitted that I was not an expert in the Coast Guard regulations for personal flotation devices. And therefore, my whole testimony was thrown out. Wow. They basically disqualified me as an expert, obviously inappropriately, because they were talking about utility patents and I was talking about design patents. Right. But... It was, it was, it was very weird. Interesting. Yeah. So as long as you have good knowledge of the, uh, the category that they're the topic that they're talking about and you have good awareness of the product, are there other yeah. recommendations you'd have for somebody who might want to get into it? Um, stuff that they should know prior to getting into a position of being an expert witness. Well, IDSA does this certification where I think it's a two day course they teach. Uh, Cooper Woodring started it with Perry Sedman, which is the course I took. And um, you need to have a good sense of what an ordinary observer would understand as what the design looks like based on the illustrations in the patents, which takes some work. Interpreting patent illustrations is not as easy as it might seem. Um, at least at first blush. I do think, it, well, you know, there's the old adage that, that brilliance has no age, right? Uh, on the other hand, I think a certain amount of experience really should be required in order to get into that, mm -hmm. in order to get into the field. On the one hand, in terms of what you've designed, if you've only been designing vacuum cleaners your whole career, you're only going to get jobs about vacuum cleaners. Whereas if you've designed a broader array of things, as you might in a consultancy, or as you might in a series of jobs, then you have a broader range of things you can testify about mm -hmm. or opine about. That's that whole thing about whether you're an expert or not. Right. Um, so, so if someone wanted to do it, I would try to get as much experience in as broad a group of things as possible or become the absolute expert in the one thing you're doing. In that one category, that one product line, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like being an expert witness is it's very doable as long as you have a mentor or somebody who's gone through it that can kind of show you the ropes. Yeah, I'm, there there are a lot of designers in IDSA in particular that are that are now 
I believe, making a living as expert witnesses. Um, I mean, I, I only kind of do it part time because uh, I'm theoretically semi-retired. <laughs> but, um, and, and Cooper Woodring just retired from doing it. So there are, there are probably half a dozen people that are busy doing it hmm. in our field, maybe more. So going, going back to the design patents themselves, what would be some tactics that, that you would suggest or you use to help to defend design patents? So the only defenses against infringing on a design patent are, one, it doesn't look like it. Okay. If it looks like it, does it look more like your patent mm -hmm. than all the prior patents before it? So there's a thing called prior art. And prior art is the prior is art, any of the products that anything that's out in the world or patented that is the same thing you're doing. One of the challenging things in the Apple case was people really like to try to figure out what Apple's going to do in their design. Hmm. So there are websites full of designs that people have done on their own, projecting what they think Apple's products are going to look like. Well, if in fact, one of Apple's products comes out and has a patent that looks like one of those things somebody did before that, then they can't get a patent because the prior art got in the way. Wow, that's really interesting, especially with all the conceptual design nowadays. I mean, there's a lot of... The computer, the computer has done all this stuff to us. Yeah. There's so much conceptual art that's out there now, and you never think yeah. that it, it could have that effect. Oh, it does. I mean, it, it's... it's in, well, I have opinions about it, but... <laughs> um, you know, I, I think some of it's pretty silly, to be honest. Uh, but it is what it is, and you have to work with it when you're working as an expert. When you say it's silly, it's the it's the fact that you have to defend against maybe a conceptual picture that was or an artwork that was posted um, for no reason yeah. other than to be cool and to show a skill set. Exactly. But now you have exactly. to defend against it. Yeah, that's really really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it, it it is curious. And uh, you were talking earlier about the impact that the cases have on product design. And I'm very curious what impact the cases actually have on developing products um, in the future. So as cases are brought, the outcome of that, how does that affect product design, industrial design today? I, I am totally surprised at how little it affects it. It it seems to me that if somebody really wanted to do a good job of designing and make sure that they were going to get intellectual property protection, that they would at least do a patent search before they complete the design and make it public. Mm -hmm. If they do a patent search, then they know what's close to what they've done. If they do a patent search, they may uncover things like those Apple designs or non-Apple designs. Uh, that are going to get in their way. And it's astounding how few companies do that. I mean, truly astounding. They wait till the thing's designed and then they go ask an attorney, can I get a patent? <laughs> yeah. And then, Which, I mean, I can understand the rationale. You got to have a design right. that infringes, you know, you got to have a design in order for it to infringe, but you got to have some hint in there somewhere. That hey, you know your your sketch looks just like this thing that was over there. That's got to be pretty difficult to go through and try to find other designs that might be similar to what you're creating. There are people who do it for a living. There are people in law firms or that work as subcontractors to law firms whose entire job is looking up patents and prior art. Hmm. I wonder if designers would be good for that as well, because uh, I, I feel like just being in the field and knowing and putting all these mood boards together and these uh, all these inspiration walls together, you, you kind of have a sense of what's out there. And, and uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and just using that knowledge to kind of help you out. Expand that, that inspiration wall to include 
what you think are the closest possible patent design patents. Hmm. Cause it may not have been manufactured, but if it has a design patent and your thing looks like it, you can't get one. This has been incredibly helpful. I have to say going through the basics of design patents and utility patents and trademarking all the way through your experience of going, uh, you know, being an expert witness in a case um, and then some of these takeaways, it's uh, it's definitely eye-opening, and I've learned a lot personally because this is oh, very new to great. me. Well, yeah, it was new to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like a, a great opportunity in the future to, to maybe get into this. So I want to ask you, where do you see the future of your profession? Well, I, my first love has always been product design. The profession, had, I mean, one of the... Interesting things about industrial design is industrial designers will do whatever they can to make a living. So, <laughs> you know, they'll they'll do graphics, they'll do exhibits, they'll do websites, they'll do, you know, anything that needs to be designed, industrial designers think they can do it. I think to some degree that is a trend that has been going on since the beginning of the profession. And I think it's one that will probably continue. Though I think there are fields in which industrial designers are having, are running into more competition, who may be more knowledgeable, for instance, in the development of websites and being able to do coding and um, uh, interface development. I mean, the principles of interface development are the same as the principles of interface design with a physical object. Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously when you get products like the iPhone, which is actually just a platform for a lot of different products, you know, it's, it's not a cell phone. It's, it's an electronic platform for a lot of different products. Right. Well then what are you designing? And I think I would love to see the profession and this is just my own wishes. I would love to see the profession begin to try to use their talents on solving bigger problems than putting a new face on a radio. Hmm. That's a very inspirational. Uh, you know, I, I just re really do think that uh, given our training and capacity and the fact that we've cultivated creativity and there are so many fields in which people aren't really rewarded for being creative. I think that creativity could have a wonderful application in trying to solve some real problems. Now, as designers, we'd have to learn a whole lot more about a whole lot of things we don't know anything about. Or we'd have to get into a really neat group of people that uh, were smarter than we are and had all that information. I mean, one of the things I, I absolutely adore is working, people, working with people that are smarter than me. It's no quicker way to learn a lot. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and it gives you the confidence that if you can't figure it out, they can. Right. <laughs> That's always good in a project. Have confidence with the team oh, around totally. you. Yeah, I, I, I think I'd love to see industrial design broaden its scope of influence. Part of the difficulty I have with being an industrial designer is we are the profession that creates landfills. You know, we are the people that designs all the stuff that ends up in a landfill. So that's kind of a, a tragic, you know, tragic comedy kind of thing. Right. Um, and it would be great if we could put more emphasis on designing things so that people will keep them longer and they won't go into landfills. Or we can make them out of things that we can reuse or we can... Maybe don't need it. Don't do it if it doesn't need to be done. Um, that that's a hard one. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to make you want to make a living, that's yeah. A hard to one. tell a, a client, maybe this isn't the right move to make a new product. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, that was uh, that's uh, <laughs> that doesn't get you a lot of work, right? Oh, but it's honest, you know. <laughs> times. Yeah, well, honest. You can't eat honesty, you know. Yeah, I, I really love that. I uh, I want to. Thank you, Peter, for taking the time out of your day to have this conversation with us. I've personally oh, sure. learned a lot, um, and it's been 
incredibly Thank insightful. You. Is there anybody that you want to uh, plug right now? Anything that's going on right now that you want to plug? Well, I'm, I'm currently teaching in the in the uh, integrated product design program at Penn, and Sarah Rottenberg and JD Albert and Chris Mary are really doing a great job with that program. I'm kind of on the outskirts of it at this point, uh, but I got involved when it first started. And I think they're doing a beautiful job of creating a really exciting educational experience. So that's my plug. <laughs> perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> well, Peter, thank you again so much uh, for your time and uh, learned a lot. So I really appreciate I it. I appreciate you inviting me and I'm very flattered. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Peter Bressler. If you haven't already, you can check out more information about the show on Instagram at Explodive View Podcast. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. See you on the next episode.